0: Over 7,000 fast-growing companies like Atlassian, FlowHealth, and Quora use Vanta to manage risk and prove security in real time. You can watch Vanta's on-demand video at vanta.com slash decoder to learn more. That's V-A-N-T-A slash decoder. Support for this
1: podcast comes from another podcast. The world's most valuable resource, it's actually data. Listen now, wherever you get your podcasts.
2: Hello and welcome to Decoder. I'm Neil Patel, editor-in-chief of The Verge, and Decoder is my show about big ideas and other problems. I'm very excited about today's episode. From now on, we're going to have two Decoders every week. On Mondays, we'll have the classic Decoder interviews with CEOs, politicians, and other troublemakers. But our new shorter Thursday episode, like today's, will explain big topics in the news with Verge reporters, experts, and other friends of the show. We've heard a lot of feedback from all of you over the past few months about expanding Decoder and about this idea, and I think you're really going to like it. The big idea we're going to talk about today does, in fact, have quite a few problems. Electric vehicle adoption in the United States. We invited Verge Transportation Editor Andy Hawkins, who's been covering the EV transition for years, to walk us through what's happening. We'll start with a fantastic article Andy wrote last year called The EV Transition Trips Over Its Own Cord. It was about the paradox of the EV market right now. The momentum for electric cars in America feels like it's started to hit serious snags, even though more people than ever before are going fully electric, and the industry has finally started shipping mainstream electric cars. And yet, it seems like every week for the past six months, some major carmaker has announced a factory delay or production pause or other EV-related hiccup. The still-too-high cost of most EVs, rising interest rates for everyone, charging anxiety, and the expiring federal tax credit on a number of popular models has created a pervasive miasma of pessimism across the auto industry. Now, carmakers have started to push back against the Biden administration's aggressive climate goals. You'll hear Andy and I talk about all of that in depth. There's also a big incentive within the Republican Party to have the culture war eat everything, and in particular turn EV adoption into what Ford CEO Jim Farley has called a political football. And the Republicans have been very successful at this. Former President Donald Trump, now the presumptive Republican nominee for president this year, and others have turned the act of buying an EV into a matter of political identity, in very silly and honestly, deeply stupid ways. Seriously, our first working title for this episode was just Woke Batteries, because it kind of explains how the Republicans talk about EVs. There's also a protectionist political urge at play that has a lot to do with China, which is far outdoing the United States when it comes to the EV transition.
3: Look, folks, uh, you know, uh, the great American road trip is going to be fully electrified. Whether you're driving coast to coast along I-10 or on I-75 here in Michigan, charging stations will be up and easy to find as gas stations are now. We're also going to invest $7 billion to make American car companies and have the batteries and other critical materials they need.
4: Here's the problem with an electric car. They don't go far, very simple. Somebody would say, yeah, I wish I could make it more complex. Like, here's the problem. They don't go far. They cost a fortune. But they don't go far. So unless you want to go to the local store or something, you're not going to buy it if you say, let's take a trip to Let's see what's a nice place around. Let's go to Ohio. Let's say, yeah, let's go. Let's go down to Florida. No, you'd have to make 30 stops, right? You don't want to go to Florida. Too many stops.
2: But, you know, you have to uh, make all these stops. They take a long time. The whole thing is ridiculous. Of course, you can't discuss EVs without talking about Tesla and Elon Musk, who is his own sort of political disaster. Tesla was obviously first out of the gate. It has been very successful. And the rest of the industry has been trying to catch up. The competition waxes and wanes, but it's driving the next wave of EV adoption. There will be winners and losers, and the companies that succeed might not be the ones any of us would guess right now. You'll also hear Andy and I get deep into infrastructure. The absence of a widespread charging network in America, coupled with persistent range anxiety among consumers, is a potent force. Battery production is a major topic too, because changes in federal law from the Inflation Reduction Act Make it increasingly difficult for car makers to source battery components overseas. The stakes are high, and there's a lot of change happening all at once. Okay, woke battery, I mean, EV adoption. Here we go. Andy Hawkins, welcome to Decoder.
5: Thanks for having me.
2: Your article really captured the feeling that the big push from both carmakers and the Biden administration to accelerate electric vehicle adoption is really losing steam. There's a lot of reasons for that feeling. and You really dug into where it is and isn't true. I want to dig into that, too. But walk us through your thesis. It feels like the carmakers in particular got way out in front of their skis. What are you seeing in your reporting? What are the people in the industry saying?
5: You saw Ford pausing on a $12 billion EV factory due to slower customer demand. You saw GM pushing back production of the launch dates for a number of its electric trucks that are supposed to be coming up. You saw GM also pushing EV truck production at its Orion facility back to 2025. You saw Honda and GM cancel plans to jointly make cheaper EVs. You saw Hertz slimming down its own plans to purchase a bunch of EVs. And now it's actually selling a lot of those on the used market. And then you've had like the last couple of earnings calls from Tesla, which is, you know, our EV lord and savior. The profit margins are shrinking. The company now is appearing to pause its plans to build a, a factory in Mexico. And it, just in general, investors are sort of nervous about a lack of vision and a future strategy from the company. So you start picking all these things together adding to the mix a historic auto worker strike that has sort of sapped a lot of the momentum from the industry and is also costing the automakers a lot of money now that they have to comply with sort of a lot of new labor mandates as part of this new contract that they have with UAW. Mix that all together and you'd get sort of just like a slurry of pessimism about this supposed historic shift to electric vehicles. And now people are starting to say, oh, it's a fad. They were never going to take over the The industry, they don't work the same way. You know, the the charging infrastructure is inadequate. You're starting to see a lot of hand wringing and pessimism out there.
2: Pull apart Tesla from the rest of the industry for me, because it feels like Tesla was on such a ride for so long, and it had apparently infinite demand. As many cars they could make, they were going to sell. The rest of the industry said, well, we can take some of that. We'll make electric trucks. We'll make electric sedans. We'll make giant $100,000 electric SUVs. Some people will buy our cars instead of Tesla's. There is excess demand for Tesla's. Some people will switch to us. Look at us. We're participating in the infinite demand for EVs. Was that just demand for Tesla's or is that demand for EVs?
5: It's clear that Tesla sort of occupies a very unique space in the industry, and it's difficult to kind of look at them and, and say, oh, they're just a car company, just like the other car companies. And, and Elon Musk himself says this in earnings calls. He, you know, he doesn't want investors and others to see Tesla as just a regular car company. He wants to be seen as a software company, as an AI company, as all these other things.
2: Software has much higher margins than cars, and Tesla has been very much positioning itself as a software company. Except Tesla still makes cars, and people are starting to notice the changes.
5: He has been able to sort of maintain this illusion that Tesla is more than just a car company. And and I think in the last year, that kind of fantasy uh, came crumbling down. And in reality, Tesla is just a car company. They make cool cars. People want them. they, They have a lot of demand for their vehicles. And it's clear that they have a lot of fans in addition to that. But they are just a car company.
2: And in the last few years, the competition has really caught up from legacy car makers and upstart companies both.
5: You had all of this competition that suddenly came in for making the Mustang Maki. You had Hyundai and Kia coming out with very popular EVs, a lot of newcomers like Lucid and Polestar flooding into the market, you know, with varying levels of success, Rivian and others sort of trying to capture the adventure market. And you start to see that Tesla's market position was starting to shrink and the control that they had was starting to to fade. In addition to that, China was rising up on the
2: other side. We have to take a quick break. When we come back, we'll dig into a problem that's affecting everyone,
0: cost. Support for today's show comes
1: from Deloitte. Here's the story of innovation told in five words.
5: Try. Explore. Connect. Pivot. Transform. See what happened there? As soon as Connect entered the story, innovation became achievable. That's why Deloitte works with clients and tech alliances
1: to bring together the people, ideas, and technologies to overcome, solve, and, of course, transform. Connect to what matters for innovation. Start at Deloitte.com US innovate.
0: Just go to ConstantContact.com right now. Constant Contact, helping the small stand tall. ConstantContact.com. Support for this show comes from
1: Slack. You're a growing business and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens. With all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started.
2: We're back talking about the challenges facing the electric vehicle market. One of the biggest ones is cost. When Tesla hit the electric vehicle scene in 2008 with its very first car, the Roadster, which was a limited edition sports car that started at just shy of $99,000, that set the scene for the way this technology has played out so far. But there's competition brewing for Tesla now, and it's coming from outside the United States. China is now putting price pressure on suppliers.
5: BYD in particular, this Chinese company, just kind of exploded with a variety of models, and they were you know, sort of giving Tesla a serious run, of its run for its money in terms of being the global EV uh, leader. With China sort of emerging as the most important auto market in the world, and then Tesla's market share shrinking in the United States, you started to see some cracks in the facade. Then we sort of got the price cuts. They started kind of gradually uh, and then they ramped up very dramatically over the course of 2023. And that kind of just created a whole price war. Ford started lowering its prices, Hyundai started to do it as well. And it just became sort of a back and forth that has, you know, created the situation where investors are now uncertain about the future of EVs and customers are still sort of casting about and looking for the right price.
2: Price is still a huge problem for the electric market. Plug in EVs are still largely a luxury good. A Tesla Model X starts at around $75,000, and even a Model 3, the cheapest Tesla, starts at around $40,000. We just don't have an EV equivalent of a Toyota Corolla or a Honda Civic here in the United States, an everyday car that starts at closer to 20 grand than 30 or 40.
5: I think there is a lot of people who are expecting Tesla to shake things up even further by releasing this $25,000 EV that had been long promised. Elon's been talking about it since like at least 2018, the desire to release a very low-priced, probably a hatchback or a compact SUV of some sort, smaller probably than the Model Y. Instead, they went with the Cybertruck. (laughs) Say what you will about the Cybertruck. It probably should not have jumped the line in terms of orders of priority, but yet that was the decision that was made, and that really sapped the company's momentum in terms of spending the money in the right way. And instead, they they spent it on this very expensive vanity
2: project. To be fair, uh, trucks are the best-selling vehicles in America, right? So you're going after the biggest markets you can think of. Sure.
5: He could have made a really great truck that was also like kind of a normal semi truck <laughs> or, you know, a, a Model 3-ish type truck, but instead he went with the Cyber Truck, which I think is, you know, in- incredibly polarizing. And as we've seen, you know, in the weeks after the customer deliveries have started, not clear that it's even that great at truck stuff, you yeah. know? It has a lot of really great tech in it, but seems to be failing at a lot of the truck stuff that I think maybe the company was hoping to prove that it was able to do it just as well as your Fords. And to be clear, the, the Ford F-150 also is not very good at doing regular truck stuff. It loses you know, almost half of its battery range when it starts to tow. It loses a ton of battery range in the cold. It's not clear that that, that Ford nailed it with the lightning.
2: Tesla is basically its own EV world. They got the winning cars to market first, and they're still the dominant player. But Elon Musk is not exactly focused on Tesla right now, or particularly connected to the day to day of that company. He's got Twitter or X and SpaceX and Neuralink and the Boring Company. New Tesla vehicles like the Cybertruck, which is now shipping to customers who are finding a lot of very basic flaws like tire wear and rust, really exemplify what Tesla's up to right now. But then there's everyone else. Some, like Ford and GM, have been making cars for 100 years or more, but are still really new to the EV market. Companies like Hyundai and Kia are still trying to figure out the space as well and finding success. Then there are really new startups like Lucid and Rivian. There are a lot of different ways to approach the market and a lot of growing competition. All that competition should be good for consumers. It should drive prices down and leave space to compete on quality and features. But instead, consumers have remained wary. Tesla has chaotically changed the prices of its cars, which distorts the market, and every other move the car makers make in response seems more born of desperation than long-term strategic choices. With all this competition, it seems like someone should be coming out on top, but instead it feels like the whole market is just being pulled down. And this isn't to put all the blame on Tesla. Building cars is hard, and building electric cars is even harder. It's been a long road for Tesla. The company didn't even have two profitable quarters in a row until the end of 2018, nearly a decade after it went public, and its competitors will face all of the same challenges.
5: The Model 3 ramp-up, you know, it nearly killed the company. And it was only because the Model 3 was a truly great car, that the company was able to sort of pull itself out of that very deep hole and then achieve the success that it did. And then followed by the Model Y, built on the exact same platform as the Model 3, hugely popular car. So it wasn't clear that Tesla was ever going to, to succeed. And I think it's only in, in recent years that we have come to see Tesla as the success story that it is. So there's still a lot of time left for, for these companies, for Rivian, for Lucid and others. They're going through growing pains. Some of them might not survive. There's obviously a lot of EV startups. That that are barely hanging on for dear life right now. It's always been a very tight margin <laughs> industry. You had your compliance cars of like the mid-2000s, 2010s, your Nissan Leafs, your BMW i3s, your Ford Energies, that you know were sort of them just testing the waters. And also they were put out to comply with certain mandates and certain jurisdictions. They were weird looking. They looked like light bulbs. They were not cool. Yeah. They were not interesting. We're st- now firmly in, in phase two of that where they're obviously taking electrification a lot more seriously.
2: There are some really ambitious goals out there for electrifying cars. In 2022, regulators in California adopted a rule saying all new cars in the state would have to be electric by 2035, and a dozen other states automatically follow that rule. The EPA is reviewing that rule now to decide whether it can go into effect. Meanwhile, most of the major car makers, like Honda, Ford, GM, and others, have said they want all of their cars to be off of fossil fuels by 2040, in part because the EU is pushing for that as well. 2035 isn't as far in the future as it used to be, and the road from here to there isn't looking smooth. Ford, for example, was all in on electric. It's got the Mustang Mach-E and the F-150 Lightning, and it seemed really excited about those cars. But now it's pulling back production to some extent. Toyota and GM as well. They're all talking more about hybrids rather than straight EVs as the way to meet their fuel economy goals in the near term. And consumers are comfortable with hybrids because you can run them as an EV most of the time and use the gas engine if you need to. I have a hybrid, but we still need to decarbonize. So the big question is whether hybrids are just a compromise while we figure out EVs for real.
5: There's very much demand for hybrids right now. And, you know, as the transition to full electric has slowed down, it's clear that hybrids might be a more comfortable choice for a lot of people who are maybe interested in electric, but not willing to commit and go fully battery electric at this point. And I think you know that's clear because the charging infrastructure is not quite there yet and hybrids sort of provide that comfortable middle ground i think for a lot of people so there's there is expectation that the hybrid market is going to to grow over the next year in a country like the united states where you know we love our trucks we love our suvs and we're we're sort of stuck in our ways and we're slower to make the changes that maybe other markets are having an easier time with. Hybrids is probably a good way to encourage more people to see the benefits of electric. And especially if they can, you know, build hybrids that are as efficient and as sexy looking, honestly, as the new Toyota Prius. I know it feels a weird thing to put yeah. the word sexy and Prius in the same sentence.
2: The old Prius um, looks like an angry robot, but this Prius looks looks hot.
5: This Prius looks hot.
2: Yeah, you know, it it's good. kind
5: of it's – it's a very weird world to live in where the Prius is, is actually uh, – I mean, The um, thing
2: that gets me about it is it's still slow. It's still a Prius. Yeah, still, it, looks, still, it looks fast, which is the most important thing. Right. There's a lot of psychology that goes into how cars look and how they sell. Cars are one of the most expensive things most people will ever buy, second only to a house, and the vibes have to be just right.
5: It's a big deal when people go into a dealership and start shopping around. They want to feel that they are making the right choice, not just for now and what their driving habits are today, but in the future. This is not something that people, for the most part, are are willing to make frivolous decisions around. If they could be convinced that a hybrid is something that could be a good holdover until the point where the charging infrastructure is more mature and more functional and can be better relied upon, and there will be a range of electric vehicles that are out there that can better meet their needs, whether it's through prices or through driving styles, then I think that they maybe they're willing to to make that sort of half measured decision. But yeah, I mean it's not ideal. None of this is ideal. I don't think the car makers are exactly thrilled about having to sort of hedge their bets with hybrids necessarily, but they're trying to sort of meet customers where there are right now.
2: Let's talk about charging networks. There is a lot of range anxiety and charging anxiety in the world, unless you have a Tesla, in which case That might be what you're actually buying. But then at the same time, it was recently very cold in Chicago, and Tesla charging network breaks down in Chicago, and there's photos and videos everywhere of dead Teslas because it's cold outside. I think EV advocates are often very frustrated because if you point all those same criticisms at gas cars – there's a lot of trade-offs with hauling around a bunch of gas too, but people have just internalized those with regular cars and they accept the risk and they understand them. It's all new with EVs and the trade-offs are different. And that seems to be a huge psychological barrier for people to overcome. Is that been coming down over time? Are the car makers doing a better job of dealing with it? Or is it just, we're all going to use Tesla's plugs and the existence of the Tesla supercharger network will solve this problem in due time?
5: With the cold stuff, it's like you can set your clock to it, you know, every (laughs) winter. The charging infrastructure in particular, it's always been a black mark in the EV story. That's clear, especially when you compare it to what's going on in certain countries in Europe and then China also, their governments went all in several years ago, maybe even close to a decade ago on charging. They knew that if things were going to shift to electric, they needed to make sure that the infrastructure was adequate in order to facilitate that shift. And so they spent the money that was necessary. Uh, The United States only started spending the money that was necessary to do the same thing this year. It was approved a couple of years ago, but the first payments are actually starting to go out from the Biden administration's infrastructure law to start building these charging stations.
3: And part of the infrastructure law, we're investing $7.5 billion to build electric vehicle charging stations all across America. So today, I'm pleased to announce we're approving funding for the first 35 states including Michigan to build their own electric charging infrastructure throughout their state. And y'all are going to be part of a network of 500,000 charging stations throughout the country installed by
5: the IBEW. Boyle well, a special thanks to you for the last election. I think that that's going to make a, a big difference and then there's the the Tesla charging standard Ford was the first to say, okay, we're going to go with with Tesla's North American charging standard. GM followed quickly after. And now I'm pretty sure that every single major car company has said the same. Their future EVs will all feature Tesla's charging outlet. And in the meantime, they're going to start sending out adapters to customers so that they can start using Tesla's superchargers, which are a better experience than any other public charging station that's out there. But you know what a lot of this sort of ignores is that you know the vast majority of people, the charging that they will need to do can take place in their own driveway. And they can charge overnight. That is the ideal way to charge your vehicle. And if you never have to go to a public charging station, you'll be better off for
2: it. (laughs) The flip side to that is we need to electrify all the cars, but about 30% of Americans live in apartments, condos, or other multi-unit situations rather than single-family homes with driveways.
5: There will need to be some sort of component in the public space that can accommodate the increased number of people who need to charge I don't give a lot of credence to the to folks in the EV world who talk about FUD, fear, uncertainty, and doubt. But I do think when it comes to cold snaps and frozen batteries and, and broken chargers, a lot of that kind of amounts to FUD because it's not the way that the majority of people are going to be charging, which is not to say that it sucks. It does suck when you try to charge your freezing cold car in sub-zero temperatures and nothing happens. So I think, you know, with a little bit more education... And then with a lot of this money that's going to be flowing into it, we're going to start to see some of that stuff even out.
2: We'll be right back with Andy to talk about the EV culture war, which sounds extremely silly on its face, but has serious implications for what could happen in the future, especially during an election year.
1: Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com.
2: We're back with Verge Transportation Editor Andy Hawkins to talk about how EVs have become politicized, what all that has to do with China, and how it poses very real threats to the climate agenda. Or, as I like to affectionately call all of this, Woke batteries.
5: One of my favorite aspects of all of this is how despite Elon's best efforts to speak the same language as right-wingers, he's unable to get them to come over to his to his company. There was a great article in Slate last year where the reporter went to the annual Dealers Association conference. I highly encourage everyone to go read it. It was really great. The best part about it was how much the dealers hated Elon Musk. (laughs) They hate Tesla and they hated Elon Musk. And these are all like very dyed-in-the-wool Republican donors for the most part. And they could not, for the life of them, bring themselves to praise him in any way. And a lot of this is because of how, obviously, Tesla approaches car dealers, which is that it doesn't have any. It's a direct-to-consumer model, which is why in some states Tesla is not legal to buy. You have to go to a neighboring state in order to get your Tesla or get it delivered to you from a neighboring state. But more than that, you have the current presidential race and the Republican candidates seem to have all decided that electric vehicles and making fun of them and saying that nobody wants them and mocking people for buying electric vehicles is a good political message to seize upon. They
4: want to take your car industry away. They're going to take it away. They're going to do the electric vehicle nonsense. You know, you drive you put a little circle around your house. You can't go outside the circle. You'll never come back. You can drive it. The first 10 minutes is one of the greatest feelings on earth. The next hour, you're in trauma, thinking about where the hell are you gonna have the car charged. Oh, you had that. Uh, Yeah, you had that. Now we wanna have choice in schools and we wanna have choice in cars, right?
5: I don't think we need to, you know, Analyze this too deeply, it's pretty obvious. Joe Biden has sort of hitched his political wagon to electric vehicles. It's a major part of his climate legislation involves getting people to switch to electric vehicles through tax credits, manufacturing credits, through funding of charging infrastructure. So, you know, by virtue of the fact that Joe Biden and the Democrats are pro EVs, the Republicans have to become anti EVs. (laughs) And then that filters down into the into the population. And it just becomes increasingly very stupid
2: is that working? Because EV demand might be softening, but it's still going up, right? People are still buying a lot of EVs. The climate message seems to have largely changed. Like People can feel that the climate has changed, so they want to buy hybrids. It, like It doesn't feel like the culture war aspect of this is working to keep people buying V8s, right? They're buying more efficient cars, and they're buying more electric cars than ever before. Is that just not playing out? Is the market just reacting to it differently? Or is it just the car makers have decided this is what we're doing to collect our tax credits, and that's the way it's going to be? It
5: is working and it isn't working. I do think that money and tax credits are more powerful than ideology. <laughs> and I think it, as as prices come down and there are more mass market uh, options that are available to people and tax credits can now be collected at the point of sale. So you walk into a dealership, you're like, I want that EV. D- the dealer says, great, it's $7,500 off the purchase price. You can get that right there when you drive your EV off the dealership lot. That's going to be an incredibly more powerful thing than whatever... Elon Musk is saying on Twitter or Tucker Carlson or whomever. But that said, it is true that it is having an effect. And you're seeing that, I think, in a number of surveys. There's been surveys that have suggested that Tesla is becoming a partisan brand.
2: Those surveys took an especially sharp turn after Elon bought Twitter and began encouraging his followers to vote Republican. Morning Consult found that in October 2022, before the Twitter deal, Tesla was a favorable brand with about 25% of Democrats and 20% of Republicans. By December of 2022, after the Twitter deal, barely more than 10% of Democrats had a favorable view of Tesla, but more than 26% of Republicans did.
5: And more than that, there have been, you know, surveys of EV registrations, I saw a study that I reported on where I think it was in the top 10% of most Democratic counties. That's where half of all of the EV registrations were. And about one third of that were in the top 5% of Democratic counties. It's not great. And you're hearing that from the from the car companies themselves. Jim Farley and others are sort of lamenting the fact that EVs are getting sort of sucked into the culture wars they would prefer that not to be the case. And I'm sure it's going to get worse before it gets any better as the presidential campaign sort of heats up and and things get even stupider. So we have that to look forward to.
2: Trump is running again, and there's a possibility that he could win again this fall. What happens if he does win? Do the EV tax credits and the industry goals all go away? Does everyone just start making V8s again?
5: He has said that he plans on canceling out the, the tax credits, but whether or not he's actually Able to succeed in that is another thing entirely. You know, he said he was going to get rid of Obamacare.
2: Didn't (laughs) happen.
5: It's harder to take away something than it is to propose something new. So, you know, it is the case when he was president last time he got rid of Obama's emission standards, and Biden basically had to come in and redo that whole process to try to make gas-powered cars more fuel-efficient. He'll try to use the EPA in whatever way he can to forward his his mission to make more polluting cars.
2: You mentioned China a handful of times. China has a booming electric car market. It's one of Tesla's most important markets. That government has also subsidized a lot of these car makers. So they might be successful, but they're successful because the Chinese government props up their finances to make sure they can stay stable long enough to become successful over time. Trump, Biden, you named the American politician competing with China is top of the list for them. It, what is the pressure all of that is having on our car market to push forward with EVs?
5: There are very few Chinese cars that are available to buy in America because of tariffs. It's just prohibitively expensive to sell a Chinese car in the United States. But I don't think a lot of experts are assuming that that's going to remain the case for too much longer. China increasingly becoming a potent force in, in the European market. Across Asia, the Middle East, Africa as well, I think it's just sort of a matter of time. We have Japanese cars, we have German cars, we have Korean cars. It stands to reason that we will eventually be able to buy Chinese cars as well. We heard it in the last earnings call for Tesla, where Elon Musk was sounding the warning, saying if China is able to start selling EVs in the United States, it's just going to decimate the United States' you know, domestic auto production. So I, I think it's an existential issue for the domestic car companies Tesla included at the same time China even though they're they're not really selling a lot of EVs in the United States or any they're still exerting a lot of influence over sort of the direction of our politics, our economy. We're starting to see a lot of Republican politicians having some doubts about, you know, the way that American car companies, Ford and GM and others are allying themselves with Chinese battery makers in particular, even though they're promising to localize and build factories here in the United States.
2: And that's a political football too. For example, last year, Virginia Governor Glenn Youngkin, a Republican, torpedoed Ford's plan to build a battery plant in that state.
5: I would have loved to have had Ford uh, come to Virginia and build a battery plant if they were not using it as a a front for a company that's controlled by the Chinese uh, Communist Party. To have that site embroiled in what would have been clearly a deal that contravened the intent and purpose of the Inflation Reduction Act incentives, which is why it was being structured the way it was, could have taken that site offline. For an extended period of time, and we have other companies that are interested in it.
2: China is simply too big to ignore. U.S. automakers need China, regardless of how politically fraught it may be. And the auto industry as a whole really looks to China as the bellwether for major shifts in the EV transition. The numbers really tell the story.
5: In a lot of ways, China is kind of like the California of the world, right? California dictates what the rest of the United States does in terms of its emissions rules and auto sales and things like that. China is kind of doing the same thing right now. It's the biggest car market in the world. It's the biggest auto exporter. I think in the last quarter, BYD overtook Tesla as the biggest seller of electric vehicles in the world. If you also are counting plug-in hybrids, and the U.S. constitutes around like ten to eleven percent, I think, of the passenger car market. That you know, that just hardly matters when compared to China because of its scale and because of the way that the government can sort of influence and sort of steer the direction of the way that these companies are are doing things. And China prioritized low-cost electric vehicles. It was the opposite here in the United States. We, we prioritized higher-cost ones as a way to fund uh, the, the production of, of more mass-market affordable electric vehicles. So I think it's, it's just it's the writing's on the wall.
2: So you mentioned battery manufacturing. Our car makers are really partnered with Chinese companies for battery manufacturing. Manufacturing In general, the United States seems to be offshore to China by default. To get some of these tax credits, you need to manufacture most of the vehicle in the United States with an electric vehicle. That means the battery has to be manufactured here. Almost nothing qualifies for the full tax credit anymore because none of the batteries are made here. Is that going to change on a short timeline, a long timeline? When are we going to have battery manufacturing in the United States at the scale needed to support electric vehicles?
5: I think it's going to take a little while, but the major automakers are saying it's coming. Ford is building battery facilities in in Kentucky and in Tennessee. GM's got one. It's spinning up in Ohio. You know, it is clear that it is on the horizon. And I think that, you know, within like the, the middle part to the latter half of this decade, we're going to start to see battery manufacturing in the U.S. really start to kick into gear. But that said, that's not going to suddenly just tip the scales. I mean, China has been working on this problem for a lot longer than we have, and that's how they've been able to capture around 75% of the EV battery market at the time. They also process the majority of the minerals that, that are needed for electric vehicles like lithium, nickel. We're trying to get cobalt out of the equation. Cobalt, very bad. You know, lots of human rights abuses associated with the mining of cobalt so you're starting to see, you know, advanced lithium iron phosphate batteries that use no cobalt becoming more prominent. Ford has said it's going to use that for its future slate of EVs. They have a lot of other things that, about them that that make them preferable to to some of the the current chemistries that we're using. They're more durable, they're less flammable, and they're cheaper. But, you know, I think that Overall, it's good that, you know, the United States is getting into the EV battery making market. Should have done it a while ago, but, you know, better late than never.
2: Let's wrap up with a a look ahead. It's an election year. It's going to be a very contentious election year. Is there anything coming this year that would change the narrative around EV adoption? Or is it going to be the political process and the culture war that really drive things?
5: I think now that the Republican primary is kind of over and done with – sorry, Nikki – I don't expect EVs to really play that prominent of a role in our politics. I could be wrong. I could be dead wrong about that. But that said, you had the auto strike as being sort of the catalyst for why it was such a major issue during the Republican primary. I think a lot of the candidates were trying to win support from some of those voters, and also, you know, it was clear that you know they thought that the UAW endorsement maybe was up for grabs. It's clear that that's not the case. Sean Fain has said a lot of nice things, and I think he's endorsed Biden. Now Trump is making fun of him on Truth Social. Great, (laughs) we'll see how we'll see how that works out. I think that that kind of closes the books on how EVs have sort of factored into our political discourse. In terms of like what's coming up ahead, there's the expectation that later this year, Tesla could unveil its plans to make a $25,000 electric vehicle. They've talked about their next-gen platform. We heard about this last year where Elon Musk talked about a brand new kind of manufacturing process that he called the unboxed process that was supposed to sort of revolutionize uh, manufacturing and would help bring the cost down so that they could sell uh, a $25,000 electric vehicle. I think that that could seriously change the discourse in a lot of ways. You might see the rest of the industry sort of race to follow by building their own cheap electric vehicles. Volkswagen has already said the ID. Two is coming. It's going to be available in North America at sometime in 2026. So I think you're going to start to see after initially piling into the luxury truck and SUV space, I think you're going to start to see a lot of these companies now chasing after that lower priced, affordable budget market in a more meaningful way, especially if Tesla is helping lead the charge there.
2: There's still the range anxiety, the charging anxiety. This is more or less the year where I think Tesla is going to open up. Other cars are going to start using the supercharger network. Is this the year that the charging anxiety starts to fade because of that?
5: Yeah, I do think so. And I think especially as more people buy electric vehicles, I think that they're going to realize pretty quickly that you know the vehicles with the range that's out there is fine and meets their needs for daily driving you know i think we put a lot of emphasis on what happens when i go on a road trip when the reality is Nobody's road tripping as much as, as, they, as I think that they think that they they might be. I think it's it's aspirational, right? And it's a it's a psychological thing that I think people are still having to kind of wrap their minds around. I think for the most part, two car households, one is electric, one's the gas car. I think that that's going to meet a lot of people's needs that way. And then as the charging infrastructure becomes more mature and reliable. And it's, you know, especially the third party public chargers stop breaking down as frequently as they have been and maybe don't freeze up in sub zero temperatures. You're going to start to see people realizing that it's entirely plausible to buy an electric vehicle, charge at your home. When you need to use a public charger, you can do so, it works fine. You don't have to download 10,000 apps or get stuck in a long line behind a bunch of angry EV owners. It's actually a seamless and enjoyable experience. Then I think you're going to start to see a lot more people realize that this is a
2: lifestyle that maybe is right for them. That's a great place to end it. Andy, thank you so much for coming on Decoder. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Thanks again to Verge Transportation Editor Andy Hawkins for joining us on the show. It was a lot of fun. This was our very first Thursday episode of Decoder, where we're going to deliver more analysis like this, in addition to the classic Decoder interviews with CEOs and lawmakers. Those will run on Mondays. If you have thoughts about this episode or ideas on what you'd like us to talk about, you can email us at decoder at theverge.com. We really do read every email. You can also hit me up directly on threads. I'm at maclist1280. There's also a TikTok, which is really fun. Check it out. It's at DecoderPod. If you like Decoder, please share it with your friends. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And if you really love the show, hit us with that five-star review, especially for this episode. If you like this episode, go leave us a five-star review. Decoder is a production of The Verge and part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. Today's episode was produced by Kate Cox and Nick Stat. It was edited by Callie Wright. Decoder music is by Breakmaster Cylinder. We'll see you next time.